So here we are, my first Patreon episode. Firstly, thank you for being a patron. By subscribing to Queer Crime on Patreon, you are helping to keep the lights on here at Queer Crime Towers, or just the study in my house in Yorkshire in the north of England. As you've subscribed to the highest Patreon level for the show, you will get a shout-out on the main show, access to all episodes three days earlier, and you will enjoy those episodes ad-free when I start accepting sponsors. But furthermore, you will get one exclusive episode of Queer Crime every single month as my way of thanking you for being a supporter of the show. Finally, a huge thank you from me for sticking with me and for listening to my podcast. Giving a voice to these lost, forgotten LGBT souls is a big deal, and I want to keep their memory alive. But I really would be lost without your devotion and your support. So thank you. Genuinely, thank you. Advance warning. This story contains details of a violent crime and prejudiced thoughts which will infuriate the fuck out of you. Listen at your own discretion. It's 1950. Best musical at the Tonys was South Pacific. Best live show at the Emmys was the Ed Wynn Show. There were no Grammy ceremony as this crime took place nine years before the first Grammys were held. And best picture at the Oscars was all about Eve. This case may not appear too grim for our modern ears. We hear all sorts of disgusting and horrible things happening these days, and we are shamefully almost desensitised to murders, except when it involves children or murders which have happened in extreme circumstances. However, the one thing that will annoy you about this case is the prejudice that prevailed at the time. It's truly shocking. The narrow-mindedness and bigotry of the early part of the 20th century still floors me when I think that it wasn't that long ago. Rotherham is a large town in South Yorkshire which has a rich history in cast iron, which was used to build ships and steam trains, a deep history in glass making for medicine bottles for pharmaceutical companies, flour milling for the famous bread brand Hovis, and importantly, coal mining. There were 24 coal mines in Rotherham over the decades, and these coal mines gave many local people employment opportunities. In fact, there was so much work available from these coal mines that people from all over the United Kingdom used to travel to Rotherham in search of employment. One of those people who moved to Rotherham in search of employment was Patrick Cooney. He had travelled from Scotland and had spent 18 months living in lodgings in the Rotherham area. A hard-working and easy-going young man, Patrick was very well liked by all who knew him. So when he walked into a police station in Rotherham at 2pm on Saturday the 1st of July 1950 and told the police officer on the front desk that he had killed someone, everyone who knew him was stunned. Ten hours earlier, at 4am on Saturday the 1st of July 1950, Frank James, a bus inspector, was going to work in Rotherham when he came across a startling sight which stopped him in his tracks. He saw a woman lying motionless on the pavement. With trepidation, he edged closer to her. He eyed her up and down, looking for any signs of life. He couldn't see anything except blood all over her clothes and her mangled face. Then something peculiar occurred to him. The woman was wearing a wig, and her wig had come off in the attack. Suddenly, Frank realised what he was looking at. It wasn't a woman. It was a man dressed in women's clothing. As it was 4am, there was no one else around, and very few people had telephones in their homes, so Frank knew it would be pointless to wake up residents in the surrounding houses. He ran to the telephone booth in nearby Lordsdale Road and rang the police. The police instructed him to stay at the telephone booth 
they would arrive as soon as they could. One hour and twenty minutes later, a police officer named Inspector Whiteley arrived and met Frank at the telephone booth. Together, Frank and Inspector Whiteley walked a short distance to where the body was lying in a pool of blood. Besides the unusual sight of a man dressed in women's clothing, which was definitely not the done thing in a mining town in South Yorkshire in the 1950s, Inspector Whiteley did notice that the attack had been quite ferocious. In fact, there were splashes of blood twelve foot away from the body. Next to the man's bloody and swollen head lay his dentures, which had been broken into three pieces. Inspector Whiteley took a step back to take in what he was looking at. He saw that the man was definitely dressed in women's clothing. There was no doubt about it. He was wearing a green and white dress and a brown coat, a green felt beret, and men's shorts under the dress, green woolen gloves, silk stockings and a silk scarf, white high-heeled shoes and a dark handbag. It truly wasn't a sight that Inspector Whiteley had seen before in his career with the South Yorkshire Police. Again, he made a list of all of the items of clothing that were on the man, and any defining features that the man had. Using these details, they issued a description to nearby police forces, the local radio and local newspapers, and asked for anyone who recognised the dead man or the clothing he was wearing to come forward and identify him. In the meantime, the body was taken to the mortuary, accompanied by Inspector Whiteley. He helped the pathologist undress the body, and there they found other items of clothing which hadn't been included in the description they had issued. The man was wearing a bra which had been stuffed with socks. The consultant pathologist was Dr Price, who had travelled 30 miles from the city of Leeds to perform the post-mortem. He noticed that the face was entirely covered in blood, but underneath the blood he saw the man was wearing lipstick, rouge and face powder. He also noticed that the man had two black eyes, a broken nose, broken jaws, and his neck was covered in bruising which was consistent with someone's fingertips. The police and the pathologist knew that this had been an extraordinarily violent death, and it was their view that the person who had killed this unknown man was extremely dangerous. However, at 2pm on the same day, a young man entered the police station at Dalton. He told the police officer at the front desk that he was the killer, and he wanted to make a statement about the previous evening's events. The man started off by giving his name. He was Patrick Cooney and he was 25 years old. He told the police that he had moved from Scotland to Rotherham about 18 months earlier as he had got a job in the coal mines. He said that the day before he had finished work, got cleaned up and went to the Dalton Top Club where he met his friend. When they were at the Dalton Top Club, they had a few drinks and they played a few games of snooker. He said he left the pub at about 11pm with another friend and they went to his house for some supper. After they had finished eating, Patrick then left alone to go home to his lodgings in Arundale Avenue. He told the police officers in his statement that he was almost home when he saw a woman standing on her own, and he shouted to her, quote, Good night, love. End quote. She replied to him, quote, Just a minute. End quote. Seeing that she wanted to talk to him, he went back to her to ask her why she was out so late on her own. Patrick said she had told him that she had arranged to meet someone called Jim, but that Jim had stood her up. Patrick didn't want to leave the woman on her own, so he said he would walk her home. Patrick put his arms through hers, and they walked in the direction of her house. When they got to a section of grass, Patrick stopped and asked her to sit down with him for a while, but she pulled away, simply instructing him to carry on. Patrick then put his arms around her and kissed her, and she didn't resist. She kissed him back. He told the police officers that he tried to pull her closer to him, and said, quote, I felt something was wrong, end quote. 
He tried to grab her breast, but he felt it move away from his hand. He then felt her private parts. Patrick said that it was a very sobering moment when he realised that this woman that he was linking arms with, and who he had just kissed, was in fact a man. Patrick continued with his statement, telling the police that he turned to walk away from her. As he began to walk away, the woman pulled at his shoulders and said, quote, Don't go, it will be all right. End quote. It was at this point that Patrick said he became so angry and disgusted with himself for kissing another man that he lost control and punched the man in the face several times in order to, quote, teach him a lesson, end quote. As Patrick started punching the man dressed in women's clothing, the man fell to the floor and his wig fell off. When his wig fell off, Patrick saw that the man had a bald patch on the top of his head. Patrick sat down on top of the man as he lay on the ground and started punching and punching and punching at the man's head and body. There was no resistance from the man. He didn't try to defend himself. He didn't even speak. Finally, Patrick, still seething with fury and rage, turned the battered man over and smashed his face against the pavement. Patrick got up from being on top of the beaten and bloody man and ran all the way back to his lodgings where he went upstairs to bed. At the lodgings, he shared a room with a man called Thomas Lynch, who was still awake when Patrick got home. He told Thomas what had happened. He said that he met a woman who had whistled after him and he had taken her for a walk. When he put his arms around her, he realised that she was a man. He told Thomas that he was so angry with this revelation that he punched the man once or twice and then left him on the ground. Patrick's statement to the police continued. The following morning, Patrick and Thomas left their lodgings at 5.45am to start their shift at the coal mine. Later that day, when Patrick's shift had finished, he came up to the surface where he heard the other miners laughing. He asked what they were laughing at, and they told him that they thought it was hilarious that a man's body had been found that morning which had been dressed in women's clothing. That comment froze Patrick in his tracks. A body had been found. He didn't think he had gone that far. He had killed the man in the dress. He waited for Thomas to come up from the mines, and he told him that he was going to hand himself in. Patrick didn't even return to his lodgings. He went directly to the police station where he said, quote, It's me you want. I did it. End quote. Before he burst into tears. At the end of his statement, Patrick was charged with the murder of the unknown man. As Patrick was giving his statement, he was unaware that the unknown man was being identified. It was Kenneth Crow. He had been identified by his wife. Kenneth was a married man who was 37 years old. He was married with two daughters who were aged 11 and 13. He was employed as a woodwork teacher at Rotherham Grammar School. When Kenneth's wife was identifying him, she identified that the clothing was hers, but she couldn't explain to the police why he was wearing her dress. In fact, she thought it was highly unusual that he was even out late that night. He never went out at night. His wife informed the police that Kenneth had waved off her and her two daughters at 8pm that evening at the bus stop. After Kenneth had returned home, their next-door neighbour spotted Kenneth in the garden watering some flowers. He spoke briefly with the neighbour and said that he was looking forward to having a quiet night in. However, he didn't have a quiet night in. There were several witnesses that said that they had seen a woman dressed in the clothing that Kenneth was wearing walking up and down Dalton Road. One witness said that he was talking to some friends on Dalton Road between 10.45pm and 11.30pm. 
As he was chatting with his friends, he noticed the woman walking up and down the road. He said he found it peculiar that she would walk up the road and then return five minutes later in the opposite direction. This happened at least three times. At one point, the woman hid behind a telegraph pole as a car shone its headlights towards her. He said that he had never seen her before and he was under the impression that she was trying to pick up any lad she could get. The following day, a nervous Patrick, dressed smartly in a suit jacket and trousers, was brought to the court to hear the charges that were laid against him. The prosecutor opened proceedings by stating, quote, It is obvious from the evidence that this man was a sexual pervert. End quote. The first witness called was Kenneth's wife. She confirmed that the clothing Kenneth was wearing was hers, but said that the gloves he was wearing belonged to their daughter. She continued by explaining where she had been that evening. She said that she had travelled about ten miles to a town called Dinnington and that she had spent the night there with her daughters. Kenneth had waved them off at the bus stop. Before she left, she had made plans to meet up with Kenneth the next day. He had arranged to pick them up the following day at 10.20am from the nearby hotel. She said that she reported her husband as a missing person when he hadn't stuck to their plans and he hadn't met his family at the agreed time. As the court case continued, some of Patrick's friends were allowed to take the stand and provide character statements. It was evident from the statements that Patrick was popular and well-liked at the coal mine where he worked. Patrick's friend, Thomas, who he shared a room with, told the court that Patrick had no idea that he had killed a man dressed as a woman. He thought he'd just punched him a few times. He said that when he heard about the dead body, the colour drained from Patrick's face. He was in a state of shock. Other witnesses presented their evidence, but at the end of the sessions, it was agreed that Patrick should be sent to trial. On the 25th of November 1950, just five months after Kenneth had been beaten to death, Patrick's trial commenced. In the courthouse, he was supported by his only living relative, his aunt who had travelled from Scotland. His aunt told the judge that Patrick had lost both of his parents when he was young, and he had been raised by his grandmother. On the first day of the trial, the court heard that Patrick had some experience in the boxing ring and that he was actually quite strong. This would explain the ferocity of the beating and how the blood spatter was 12 foot away from the body. The pathologist gave his testimony and stated that the cause of death was strangulation, which was accelerated by shock caused by the fracture of the upper and lower jaw. Again, the pathologist said that during his post-mortem there was evidence that Kenneth was, quote, a sexual pervert and that he was in fact an habitual addict to a certain form of perversion. End quote. This constant reference to Kenneth being a pervert was not explained in the newspapers of the time, as it would have been too delicate for the sensitive readers, but it probably means that he had recognised some evidence of anal penetration in Kenneth. Patrick's defence pointed out to the jury that all of the character witnesses testified that he was someone who had never had a history of violence, and had a good character. The defence informed the jury that Patrick's reaction was almost normal and justified because he had been provoked by his discovery that Kenneth was a man in woman's clothing. This said that Patrick had no intention of murdering anyone. There was no intention of murder here at all. They said, quote, It could be said that by dressing up in women's clothes, it could be sufficient grounds for reducing the charge from murder to manslaughter. Is he to be blamed for hitting out? A man may surely defend himself from the importuning of a homosexual. End quote. When it was the prosecutor's turn to question Patrick, he asked him if Kenneth had been violent towards him. Patrick confirmed that Kenneth wasn't violent at all. In fact, he hadn't even tried to defend himself. 
The prosecutor made sure that the jury were aware that Patrick had actually walked away from Kenneth, knowing that at the very least he was quite severely injured. Even if he didn't intend to murder him, the intention was to inflict grievous bodily harm. Additionally, when Kenneth fell to the ground, he was not in a position to defend himself from a fit, young and strong man like Patrick. After much toing and froing by both sides, the judge gave the jury their instructions and that they had to decide whether this was a case of murder or manslaughter. He said, quote, You should not be put off by disgust at the behaviour of Kenneth unless you thought it was relevant to this case. End quote. Jesus. The jury took just two hours to return to the court. They found Patrick guilty of manslaughter. The judge sentenced Patrick to five years in prison and said, quote, You did not intend to murder Mr. Crow, and it might be proper to say that the attack was justified. You are a man of good character, and you are well thought of by your peers. Mr. Crow was a man of education, who in the course of his profession was put in charge of boys. What it was that creature was up to that night may never be realised. What tricks was he seeking to play on some innocent passerby? It is a thousand pities that the accused man had the dreadful misfortune to be accosted by the deceased. End quote. Oh, what a twat. The judge's statement at the end of this court case perfectly sums up the shitty and horrible views at the time. The judge actually sounds like he is apologising for having to send Patrick to prison for killing Kenneth. The timing of this case is quite important. I have covered the road to decriminalisation of homosexuality in the UK in my cases entitled London, The Last Gay Hangings and London, Michael Booth. I won't cover them again here. But Kenneth Crowe's killing happened 17 years before homosexuality was decriminalised in England. At the time of this crime, men could be imprisoned for any sexual activity with another man. You can see why the legal system and the judge made prejudicial comments. Other professional people had made similar comments for decades, for centuries. They weren't going to say anything different and defend homosexuals. And because these people had said these comments about gay men, they were printed in newspapers for the public to read. Professional people, supposedly educated people, said some truly awful things which fed the narrative of hate in the general public towards LGBT plus people. In this story we hear about the vile killing of Kenneth who lost his life. Whether he's gay or not, we don't know. He never came out, or he could never have come out. He did kiss Patrick back, though. Or perhaps he was transgender. We don't know. But that would have been even less understood in the 1950s, and saying that you were transgender at that time would have been a one-way ticket to the nearest asylum. Trans folk were treated appallingly. And to be honest, they still are. The one element that is not covered is how his wife felt. That side of the story wouldn't even have entered the journalist's minds at the time. In fact, I couldn't even find his wife's name. She simply referred to as his wife or Mrs. Crow. She must have loved her husband. They had been married for years, and he was their main provider in his role as a teacher in the local grammar school. She had to deal with his death, in addition to the realisation that she didn't know some parts of her husband's life, the parts he'd kept hidden. And there's no mention of the effect on their daughters who were still only 11 or 13 years old when he died. I really hope they were supported in the aftermath by their friends and neighbours. I hope they were not ridiculed by people in their community, or ostracised. I hope his daughters weren't bullied at school. A husband and a father being killed in women's clothing would have brought shame to some families, and it would have been a carte blanche to some narrow-minded arseholes to be vile to Kenneth's grieving wife and their children.
It was a different time though, and people were twats then. Did you know that there are 195 countries in the world, and that out of those 195 countries it's still illegal to be a gay man in 72 of them? Did you know it's still illegal to be a gay woman in 44 of them? And did you know that any same-sex activity in 11 of them could result in a death penalty? Utterly shameful in the year 2021. Why are LGBT plus people perceived to be immoral heathens in those countries? It's because those countries are governed by assholes. The people in charge have the power to change the perception of LGBT plus people in their countries, but they don't. Instead, they actively ask for LGBT plus people to be outed, to be imprisoned, to be brutalised and raped, or to be killed by their families. You might think there is very little you can do. There is. Research any LGBT plus equal rights charity and support their causes. Research the projects undertaken by the United Nations to support the advancement of LGBT plus equality and inclusion overseas. There's always something you can do to support the voices of the silenced. You've only got one life, so why not live it by being helpful and kind? Until next time. <laughs>